the strangest thing about dispensationalism, the teaching, is that I have flat out had conversations with Christians where I, you know, we'll, we'll talk about dispensationalism or I'll bring it, someone will bring it up or maybe I'll bring it up. And the, the other Christian that I'm talking to will say, what's dispensationalism? I, I've never even heard of that. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. And then when I say, well, do you believe that there's going to be, before Jesus can return, there's going to be this Antichrist figure? Yeah. Do you believe that there's going to be this rapture? We're all going to be caught up into the air. And Yeah. Do you believe that the temple in Jerusalem has to be rebuilt before Jesus can come back? Yeah. You're a dispensationalist. So people <laughs> hold dispensational beliefs, but quite often have no idea that that's what it is. Right. In other words, they don't call it dispensationalism. They actually just call it Christianity because that's the way they've been told. Like, again, they just assume the apostles came straight from them, right? Mm-hmm. Here comes ad content. Hello, 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 my friends. Welcome to 2021. We all made it, right? We made it through all 87 and a half months of last year. Now, I know for some of you, the year may not have been bad. For others of you, it may have been awful. And for a lot of people, uh, it was a mixed bag. I personally had kind of a rough year. However, I'm really glad that you're here. And I am glad that you downloaded the show. And I think this year is going to be amazing. So for a lot of reasons, this year, and maybe a few episodes, if you go back in time, you're going to hear ads inserted randomly throughout the show. Not a lot. That's a thing. And I think that's normal for a lot of podcasts on the internet, especially ones that are overall pretty free. I say all that to say there is an ad-free version of the show. Matter of fact, there are four versions of the show. So there's the version you're listening to now. And then there is the patron version. There's an unedited patron version, and then there is a video version as well for the patron supporters there. So all of those are attainable and easily accessible, and you will get a private feed there that is ad-free and all of the goodness. So bear with me on that as we figure this out together. The conversations won't change. The quality of the content hopefully will not change. And I do have some other ideas for this year, specifically working on a few that are not interview-based. And so I'm looking forward to seeing some feedback on those when they come up and get ready to get finished. I'm about halfway through like four of them. So we'll, we'll see when that happens. However, today I welcome my friend Keith Giles back to the show. Keith has written a new book. Matter of fact, he's written multiple new books, but only one has recently come out. This conversation was, I believe, recorded before Halloween. And so you'll hear some of those dated references there. But the year slipped away from me and it just didn't fit in a good spot. But I think I would like to start this year with a conversation of expectancy about eschatology a bit, of end times theology and where we go when we die and why that matters and what that lens looks like if we tilt it a bit and we figure out, oh, what we maybe have been told, or at least I was told growing up in the church. That's not the only story. It's not even the only chapter in a book of a story. And that matters. And so this is a very brief overview of some of that. I liked it, loved it. And um, I enjoyed having this conversation with Keith. Here we go. Keith, welcome back, man. An hour behind. I think this is the third time zone that I spoke to you in. I think you've been in Mountain Time once. Maybe I'm misremembering. Definitely on on West Coast, and now you're back in the great land of Central Coast. Central Coast. No, no, no. Central actually, time. you're wrong. Oh, no, you're no, on Mountain no, Time El right now. El Paso, Texas, but El Paso is the only part of Texas that is in Mountain Time. You're right. You're you're on Juarez time. 
You're on Juarez yeah. time. Yeah. It is Juarez. That's across the border, right? That's right. Right yeah. across the border. Yeah. El Paso is underneath New Mexico. I always forget. It's, yeah. If you can, if you can picture what Texas looks like, you know, it's got that tall sort of chimney mm-hmm. and, and then, then, uh, and then to the far farthest Western point, there's a little triangle tip. Mm-hmm. El Paso is in the actual tip of that little triangle on the Western part. So mountain time. Yeah. I'm from that chimney right at the uh, armpit there of New Mexico and, and Texas. At the, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know if that's what you want to call it. Um, that, that, that sounds about right. Mom, if you're listening, I'm sorry. We don't live in an armpit, though it is uglier than Virginia. So, um, But either way, welcome back to the show, Keith. Uh, it's been, uh, it's been like, like over a year. It's been a while. So, I think so what is new? Obviously, you've moved to the west of the armpit of western Texas, to the mountains of, mm-hmm. of El Paso. What else is new? Well, um, yeah, we kind of came back to El Paso. This is where Wendy and my wife, Wendy, and I met and got married going to college at UT El Paso. So we kind of moved back here about a year ago to uh, be with my mom and dad. And he just passed about a month ago. Mm. And um, we were just talking about that before we hit record. And yeah. um, But um, uh, so other than changing, moving again, uh, hopefully we're not going to move anytime soon. Yeah, I've been working with a group called Peace Catalyst International. Uh, they do some work with bringing Muslims and Christians together, or usually over a meal, uh, to focus on what we have in common, which is Jesus, ironically. And um, so they've been doing some great work, and we're excited about working with them. And uh, I've just been writing books like a madman. And mm-hmm. so uh, I'm having this new book that came out about a month ago, Jesus Unexpected. And actually today, I think I finished writing the next one. You said you didn't want to tell your publisher, and I don't know if Raf listens to these, but I feel like I feel like you just. Oh, blew I was, that. I was being facetious. Of course, <laughs> he knows. He'll know. Is it also uh, an un book? Yeah, this is a uh, so the Jesus Un series. There is an end in sight. So this Jesus Unexpected is number what is this six? One, two, three, four. Oh, number five. <laughs> it's number five. Yeah, there'll be seven total when I'm done. Mm. So uh, is the last one more. name unending. Please say it's unending. No, 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 no. Come on. So uh, this, yeah, the the one that just came out a month ago is Jesus Unexpected. That's about the end times. The one that I'm working on right now, trying to finish up right now, is uh, Jesus Unforsaken. That's about the cross and penal substitutionary atonement theory. And then the final one in the series, uh, you know, know, hear it here first. It'll be called Jesus Unarmed. uh, And that'll be about, you know, Jesus and the Prince of Peace and nonviolence and all that. And you haven't started that one yet. You just finished Unforsaken. yeah. Yeah, I just today finished, I'd say... 90% 90% of the writing is done. There's going to be some, there's always rewriting, you know, go through it and do some last minute little touches, but mm-hmm. the bulk of the writing from scratch is done. So you're done with the unseries for the most part. Except for this last book. Yeah. Okay. So I have one more yeah. book to go that I need to write, but I'll honestly, the, the one Jesus unarmed, I have been, um, I have been talking about this topic of Jesus and nonviolence mm-hmm. for probably 15 years. I feel like I have answered every possible rejection about it. 200 times. So it's, it's going to write uh, itself. I think I could write it in my sleep. I really do. So I don't think it'll be as much of a, of a challenge. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure the book hears you right now and says challenge accepted. Let's see That's what you've right. got. <laughs> so <laughs> I had so many questions about how you write so fast, but I've realized I heard N.T. Wright say on a different podcast that he talks about so many of these things so often that oftentimes he just, he's like, yeah, I just sit down and I write. I know what I want to say. I don't really need to edit it. I just, I know what I want to say. I'm just going to write. But I watched your, st- your Facebook post updates and I, I have been trying to write for myself at a couple thousand words a week unsuccessfully. 
though I don't know. There's probably 15,000 words there. I don't even know <laughs> if any of them all go together, though. I, I, I'm envious, Keith, envious yeah. of, the, of the things there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of it is, you know, um, this is all I do now. For the last couple of years, I've just been focusing on nothing but writing my blogs and books and, you know, podcasting and, and kind of the stuff I love to do. But, you know, now that I've done so many of these books as well, I always do an outline, like you like you mentioned with N.T. Wright. I mean, usually I have blogged or written or spoken on the topics that I want to cover in the book enough times that I, I do kind of know already what I want to say. So once I outline it, I know, oh, chapter one, I'm going to talk about this, and then, mm-hmm. then, then I'll talk about that. And then so I just kind of write it in, in, in sections. And I usually write for two or three hours at a time because this is all I do. I'm able to focus and do that. Yeah. But the next one that, that will be coming out that we'll talk about later uh, about the cross is probably the, this is definitely the hardest book I've ever written hmm. because the, the atonement and the cross, it just feels like advanced physics compared to everything else. You know what I mean? It, <laughs> it's just, it's just the most complicated thing to try to explain, you know, in what way did Jesus die for my sins hmm. and, how does that actually work? Plus with all the other stuff that kind of swirls around that topic. So yeah. this, that was that was a tough one. This is actually probably very challenging. Huh. Yeah. Well, pastors make it look so easy when they tell you it's all about this is what it says in 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 Mark and in Romans and in this you know, they make it look so easy. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, I mean I guess it depends on what your goal is, you know. Fair enough. I mean, I'm not reading off a script. Like I and I don't mean this to be uh, it's probably going to come across this way, but like, you know, a lot of pastors, if they're denominational, they, there is sort of a script. The denomination believes this about mm-hmm. whatever the topic is. And so all I got to do is go and grab what some of the leading scholars or authors in my stream have said about it and just repeat what they said. Yeah. But, you know, with my books, I'm typically wanting to challenge a lot of those ideas and try to bring something totally new if I can to the table. And so because of that, it's it's never easy. There's always uh, a lot of research that has to be done. And it's usually why I blog on these topics for usually at least a year before I even start writing a book on it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get to this current book, the one that came out a couple, has it been, it's been, I was going to say a couple months, um, time COVID I'm, I'm in a COVID time shift. I, I time is, 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 is all relative to me. Anymore. <laughs> right. It's, I don't know what day it is. It's almost, it's almost Christmas and it was just Memorial day. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what time it is. As the Christmas decorations out already. It's not even I heard, early October. I heard, and I, I saw a Halloween commercial the other day, but it had sleigh bells in the music. <laughs> but it was advertising Halloween candy, like in bulk. Yeah. Come and get it, people. Come and get it. It's mm-hmm. on sale. But it had sleigh bells in the back. And I told my wife, I was like, this is weird. Listen to this. And I rewound it. And she's like, are those sleigh bells? I was like, yeah, I think. She's like, that's, she's like, that's weird. Why, why, why are they why are they here um so jesus unexpected where you're basically trying to or i would i would argue you do tackle the end times before we talk a bit about that book like why do you keep kicking sacred cows like why is this necessary right well that's a good question i mean i, I think people i'm sure some people have maybe in their imagination that what i do when i sit down to write a book is say what will really piss people off? Um, what's something super controversial? I can like, you know, uh, poke the bear. That's, that isn't really what I do at all. I mean, um, what I've been doing this whole Jesus on series, honestly, has been a lot of it, again, born out of my own experience. I just sort of have, I, what I've experienced is that I just want Jesus, you know what I mean? And I feel like so much of theology and 
and uh, the doctrines that we have and churches we know it kind of a thing. Like it just sort of, and in human nature too, I don't want to just blame it on that because it's in the end, it's people. You know, we just put all kinds of other things between us and Jesus that I have felt like that's why it's Jesus un. Like we, I feel like we have to untangle, you know, our mm-hmm. faith from our politics. We have to un, you know, unbind Jesus from the book. Uh, you know, because the, we've got the Bible confused with Jesus or Jesus confused with the Bible. We don't know the difference. Uh, so it's things like that. It's just like recognizing, hey, I think we've kind of uh, our our vision, our awareness, our understanding of who Jesus is, is is a little bit off kilter, a little off focus. And so each book, what I've been trying to do is to sort of point that out to people, hopefully to say, hey, uh, let's back up a little bit. Are we thinking about this the right way? Are we really seeing Jesus for who he really is, or are we being kind of distracted by some of these other things? So that's really bottom line, I think. Every book in the Jesus Sun series is sort of a tackling something that I feel like is, uh, that's kind of dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. that because it's distracting us, it's not allowing us to truly relate to Jesus the way that we should. Yeah. So I'm going to be sarcastic and tongue in cheek here, but the end times, I feel like the church already knows what this is. I'm going to die. I'm going to lay in the ground for forever. And then the world's going to burn. And it's arguably possibly my job to help it burn so that Israel can be established as a nation. Jesus can come back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Antichrist, Tim LaHaye, Jerry B. Jenkins, bad Nikolai Carpathia and Nicolas Cage movies. And then, yay, heaven's here, right? Yeah, that's that's yeah. the end times, correct? That's, that's yeah. It's all of it Pretty in a nutshell. Much, yeah, although, you know, usually what I hear it described, it's not that I die and lay in the ground part of it. It's, I mean, everything else you said, yes. Usually it's any minute now, any day now, mm. I'll be driving down the road, and we're talking to my friend on the phone, and I'll just I'll just go, oh my gosh, look at that! There's Jesus! Oh, there he is in the clouds! Wow! Oh, and I'm oh, I'm floating in the sky! Woo! And I'm like, <laughs> it's uh, it's that it's that feeling that any minute now, it's been any day now. It's it's you know we're closer now than we've ever been before. Uh, Jesus is coming back in the sky, and he's basically going to validate how right we have been all along to everybody. See, I told you. Mm-hmm. Jesus was, you know, was Lord and you didn't believe me and we're right. And he'll like destroy all of my enemies and he'll, you know, shame all of them in this battle of Armageddon or whatever, mm-hmm. and then establish the kingdom on, and, uh, and then there you go. Yeah. And oh, the judgment, you know, then, then, then it kind of gets, you know, it depends on what version you heard. You kind of maybe, is, is there a tribulation before that? And then, and then that happens, or does it happen? And then the tribulation happens or, you know, um, but ultimately, yeah, that's the basic gist of the story. Like you said, um, before that can happen, you know, certain we have to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. There has to be some antichrist figure that makes a peace treaty with Israel for, uh, you know, or seven years and then breaks it in the middle uh, of the of that time, the three and a half years. Uh, he has to stop the daily sacrifice, like all that stuff. And so, yeah, that's all part of what we've seen in the either a thief in the night or left behind mm-hmm. or any of those kinds of things. So you're right. People do think that they already know what that is. And so, yeah. What I try and do in the book is to let Christians know, first of all, and in fact, that's the first thing I do is say, by the way, that whole thing, mm-hmm. that whole story, that whole thing that you've been, you think, I even had someone tell me this, that we, we act as if that that story, that version of the, of the second coming in the end times was handed to us by the apostles. But it wasn't. It was actually handed to us by a guy named John Nelson Darby in 1830. Mm-hmm. And it became, didn't become popular until 1850. 
And then because of things like the Schofield Reference Bible and D.L. Moody, and then later Dallas Theological Seminary and Talbot and some of these other Bible schools that were, that were reinforcing and, and now teaching this end times uh, rapture doctrine, lo and behold, it became, in America especially, it became the only way to think uh, of that end times second coming story. But what that means is that for 1,830 years or 29 years, that's not the way Christians thought about that. That's not the way they read those kinds of scriptures like Daniel or the Alibi Discourse or even Revelation. So that's the first thing. I just want, again, I, I just want to educate Christians that, hey, yes. by the way, it hasn't always been this way. It's very relatively new, and it actually doesn't come from very good, I would say, it doesn't come from very good biblical scholarship. I want to back up, because we used a lot of words there, like tribulation, yeah. rapture. I think you used the word dispensationalism, and if you didn't, I'm going to. You used all of it discourse, Daniel 7, which isn't a big word. It's just a chapter in the Bible, but and Darby as well. And in full disclosure, I can remember the day that I decided to go to Liberty, although I don't think my family was happy that I went to Liberty, you know, because I left Texas and then never went home. I can remember my dad gave me a red leather bound Schofield study Bible, which actually it's right here. Um, I still read it. I, I enjoy it. It's still the Bible. It's all marked up and highlighted, and I don't read it as often as some other versions that I have, but... I didn't realize who Darby was until I read, I want to say it was Benjamin Corey's book, Unafraid. And he had like two sentences in there about Darby as a passing thing. Like, obviously, everybody knows this. And ever since then, I've flirted around a little education of Darby. I had no idea his impact on Schofield or Schofield's impact on me and or my dad and the the whole continent of North America. So yeah. when you say dispensationalism, for those that are unfamiliar with that, or maybe they are already living underneath a belief of that, and they just didn't know that it was called that tribulation, there's post-tribulation, pre-tribulation. Can you just in brief say, when we say dispensationalism, here's what that means and why that matters, and then maybe tackle yeah. some of those terms. Yeah, so let, yeah, let's do that. Walk, let's walk through some of that. So you're right. The strangest thing about dispensationalism, the teaching, is that I have flat out had conversations with Christians where, you know, we'll, we'll talk about dispensationalism or I'll bring it, someone will bring it up or maybe I'll bring it up. And the, the other Christian that I'm talking to will say, what's dispensationalism? I, yeah. I've never even heard of that. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. And then when I say, well, do you believe that there's going to be, before Jesus can return, there's going to be this antichrist figure? Yeah. Do you believe that there's going to be this rapture? We're all going to be caught up into the air. And yeah. Do you believe that the temple in Jerusalem has to be rebuilt before Jesus can come back? Yeah. You're a dispensationalist. So people <laughs> hold dispensational beliefs, but quite often have no idea that that's what it is. Right. In other words, they don't call it dispensationalism. They actually just call it Christianity because that's the way they've been told. Like, again, they just assume the apostles came straight from them, right? Mm -hmm. So, but again, that that is where, so these are ideas that John Nelson Darby popularized uh, into the Christian church. Again, like in 18, 1830, 1850, by the time it kind of took off. So that's one. Um, and, and again, dispensationalism is more than just that end times rapture theology. There are other things to dispensationalism where it talks about how God deals with mankind throughout history through these different dispensations. That in the Old Testament, that was one dispensation. The New Testament is a different dispensation. But in my book, I don't deal with that because like, what I'm mainly concerned about is the end times part of that you know, story. So I just narrowly focus on the end times rapture stuff that we bought into through Darby's influence. So what other terms do you think we so, should? So we've got tribulation, which yeah. unless I'm wrong, is just a period of time that we're all just going to suffer, correct? Like everyone else got raptured up and everyone left over on the phone watching people fly up into the sky. 
they're in yeah. for a world of hurt. Yeah. So real quick on the tribulation thing, again, this is something that is comes from a misreading, I believe, of the Olivet Discourse and, and some other biblical prophecies in the, in the New Testament. But it's the belief that, yeah, the tribulation is basically a really bad time for, uh, and so again, there's pre and mid and post. So there's different arguments Christians disagree on whether or not there will be a rapture before this horrible time, meaning the, the Christians get to escape. And then then the, in that case, the tribulation would be for people that were pretend Christians. They thought they were Christians, but they weren't really Christians. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to suffer through the tribulation. Um, if it's mid tribulation, then real Christians will suffer through some of the tribulation, but about midway through the tribulation, then Jesus comes back and they're pulled out of it. And then it can, would continue with the pseudo Christians. And then the post tribulation would be Christians go through the entire horrible season of basically intense persecution, torture, death, you know, horrible, horrible things happening to them uh, under the hand of the Antichrist and the beast. And then at the end of that, and only when it's over, then Jesus raptures us or takes us out of that. And then, of course, you know, brings the hammer down. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to define Antichrist, but I have a whole different line of questioning for that. So I'm, I'm yeah. going to wait for that. Because, Let's do that. You're right. Um, that's, a, that's a special that's, thing. Yeah, I'm, yeah. So the other one is, is the rapture. So I think it's inherently baked into the bread that you and I take at communion when we go to church, that the rapture is a predetermined thing. Can you give kind of the history of the rapture of, because from what I understand, from what I've read, not only of you, but from many others, is rapture is a new thing. Like rapture was never a thing. Jesus didn't seem to believe in the rapture. Paul didn't seem to believe in the rapture. Athanasius, you know, in a rapture. Like, so what's, like, why is it a thing? Like, and how did we get to it yeah. being a thing? Yeah. So um, what we really do, that's, that's probably one of the main things we can pin on John Nelson Darby, that, um, that idea of this rapture, this pre-tribulation rapture, this second coming uh, rapture of Christ, uh, or in times rapture of Christ, uh, who would come and rapture us, pull us out. Um, so yes, it is a new. It was a relatively new thing. Darby was the one that that kind of put connected these dots uh, in the scriptures, and mainly the main. Uh, if we could point to one main scripture verse um, that seems. To support that view is First First uh, Thessalonians chapters four and five, where Paul uses language that sounds like we talks about we'll be caught up in the air to meet Jesus. Um, <clears throat> but uh, and we I don't know if you want to get into that specifically now deeply because to de- but but to do that I need to um, talk a little bit about the Olivet discourse. Okay, to sure. Explain that. Sure. Is that okay. Let's go. Yeah, let's dive in deep. Let's just jump in. Let's okay. Go. So. Um, so let's just put a pin in First Thessalonians because again, that's the that's the Bible verse, really the only Bible verse that sort of suggests that we're going to be literally sort of vacuumed up into the sky, you know, and, and fly into the sky to meet Jesus. Um, so again, we'll come back to that in a second. So in the New Testament, from Jesus, there's what's called the Olivet Discourse, and it's because uh, it, Jesus gives this sort of prophetic warning and um, a very long prophetic sort of it's a prophecy. Jesus has a prophet prophesy something. Uh, on the Mount of Olives. Now, it's in Matthew 24, most famously, but it's also paralleled in Mark and in Luke. And actually, one, a great thing you can do is to, if you can find a way to do this, put all three side by side, Matthew 24, uh, the, the Mark and the Luke side by side, because uh, there's large chunks of it that are almost verbatim exactly the same, but the places where they slightly differ where one gives a little bit different information than the other one can also be really instructive and very helpful. So that, that was actually something that really helped me uh, in my study. But anyway, 
Now let's just go back all the discourse. You know, what Darby and end times futurists will tell us is that what Jesus is describing in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse is the end of the world and, and the signs that we need to be looking for, for Jesus to return in the sky and take us all away. Okay. So um, the problem is that if you actually go and read Matthew 24, read the Olivet Discourse, this is how it begins. Jesus and the disciples are walking out of the temple in Jerusalem. The disciples stop and marvel at this building and they say, Jesus, have you ever seen anything more amazing? Isn't this the most magnificent building you've ever seen? Wow, what an amazing temple. And Jesus' response to that is to say, you know, a time is coming very soon when not one of these stones of this temple will be left upon another, but every one of them will be thrown to the ground. And this shocks the hell out of them. And they're like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, time out. What? Mm. Well, Jesus, what is the sign of that? What will be the sign of that happening, of this destruction of the temple you're talking about, that you're saying is going to happen very, very soon? Then they walk up to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus tells them, he answers that question. These are the signs of when that temple will be destroyed. Now, that temple was destroyed in about 40 years from when he said this. And so when Jesus in that message says, some of you standing here will not taste death before everything I have told you comes to pass, he is not lying. He's telling the truth. Many of them, again, this was within their lifetime. 40 years later, that temple was destroyed, and it was destroyed prophetically the way he said it was. And so, again, it's not a prophecy about the end of the world. It is a prophecy, Jesus says, about the end of the age. But the end of the age is not the end of the world. It was the end of the Jewish age, which is actually something that uh, Daniel uh, sort of gives us a heads up in, in Daniel 9 and other, other chapters of Daniel, where Daniel will prophesy about that God speaks to him about the end of the Jewish age, the end of the, the times of the Jews. And so this is exactly the same thing Jesus is prophesying. It's the end of the age, the end of the Jewish age, and it's his coming, but it's his, it's not his coming the way that, that uh, dispensationalists and Darby has told us it is, okay? We again have, we hear when, when we read those kinds of scriptures where it talks about Jesus coming, or, you know, when Jesus tells the, the, uh, the high priest, for example, right before his crucifixion, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Well, he did, but what he saw was not Jesus on a horse in the sky riding in the clouds, literally. What he saw, however, coming in the clouds was the same exact coming in the clouds that Jeremiah meant and Isaiah and Ezekiel and other Old Testament prophets. When they talked about God coming against Babylon or Egypt or Edom or even Jerusalem, mm -hmm. it's a coming in judgment in other words, God warned you, he asked you to, that if you didn't stop doing, you know, following this direction, this path, that destruction would come upon you. And because you didn't listen, now the destruction is coming. And the way it's described as, is God coming in the clouds? Mm. Jesus uses that same language, that he is coming. But it's not, again, it's not good news. It's not, yay, he's coming. It's in, in more of the sense, even as the way Jesus means it in the book of Revelation, uh, at the beginning, beginning of the book of Revelation, when he speaks to the seven churches, he commends the, each of those seven churches for something they're doing great, and um, he blesses them. But then whenever he calls out something that he feels like they're doing wrong and he sort of rebukes them, his warning to them, his warning is that if you don't stop, I'm going to come to you. 
That's not a reward. <laughs> I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand. So again, they understood that that coming of the Lord, that coming in the clouds was not a rapture, yay, here we go to heaven kind of coming. It was a coming in very much in the sense of uh, this apocalyptic hyperbole, again, mm -hmm. used all through the Old Testament. Jesus repeats it when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming in 40 years at 70 mm -hmm. AD. Mm -hmm. And so if we understand that that's what he's saying, that that's what's being discussed, um, that he's, it's not a discussion about the end of the world. It's not a discussion about the physical return of Jesus in the sky. If we read it properly, I would say, then, then it all makes sense. And um, then, it, then it, you know, everything Jesus says was going to happen actually did happen. And actually in some pretty, pretty astounding ways when you look at actually how uh, it was fulfilled in AD 70. Yeah. How would someone, uh, myself included, read Old Testament and I guess New Testament prophecy in a, in a deprogrammed way, because the way, and you reference it in your book, you say one of the main outcomes, well, let me ask you, is it all right if I quote your book, Keith? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. One, one of the main outcomes of Darby's theology has been the tendency to apply current events to biblical prophecies in the hopes of determining the date of the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. And mixed in that would also be the rapture and everything else. So I don't think most people know how to read the Old Testament prophecies and prophets without reading it that way. And so with apocalyptic literature, with the word apocalypse literally just meaning like a revealing, like a, I'll use a yeah. metaphor that I heard the other day, like, you know, turkey dinner at Thanksgiving, if it's underneath the thing. Look, I apocalyptic dinner. Here's the turkey. Yes. Look what yes. we've done. I, it's an yeah. apocalypse for you. But most people don't understand the word that way. And it has a different nomenclature in the world that we live in, the same way that Snapchat is a thing that means something in the world that we live in. <laughs> it has a right. different nomenclature than those two words should. So... How do we begin reading those? Like, so, you know, so say someone's listening and they're like, yeah, I'm not going to go buy the book, but I do kind of okay. want to engage in this. Like, how do you do that? Uh, well, okay. So here's what I would say. Um, and you don't have to buy the book. Cause I think actually you can, you could literally on your own do a study and you could see what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. They should so, buy the book. All of them. They're, they're should. fantastic Come books, on. but I, so I know more. people are lazy and sometimes yeah. I am. So. But you know what though? Listen, I, I would say uh, very respectfully, if there's somebody who's like, look, he I study the Bible. I don't need, I don't need mm -hmm. to buy your, buy your book. So, I mean, I, that's fine. Well, I would just say to that, that person, you know, and, but I do this in the book. I point this out in the book. I give very specific examples in the book. So that's why it would help you if you did read it. <laughs> so for example, when Jesus uses, like, you know, it's, it's called apocalyptic hyperbole. So when, when Jesus in Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse, when he uses phrases like the sun will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth and there'll be tribulations such as never been since the time of, you know, the beginning until the end, nor ever shall there be again. And all this kind of language, which, which if we don't recognize the fact that this is apocalyptic hyperbole, and in fact, if we haven't noticed that what Jesus is doing when he uses that language is that he's quoting verbatim mm -hmm. from Jeremiah, from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from these Old Testament prophets. And when they use those same exact phrases to talk about how, you know, the destruction that was going to come upon Babylon or Egypt or Edom or Jerusalem, again, it was never literal. You know what I mean? So they talk about like the smoke of the fire of your destruction rises forever and ever. That, that's one of the things that happens in, um, in the Old Testament when they're talking about the destruction of Edom. Well, no, if you go to Edom today, which is basically Syria, um, no, you're not going to see eternal smoke going up forever. Um, I mean, maybe from a recent conflict, but not from that one back, you know, 6,000 years ago. Yes. So part of it is that, like, so, so in other words, like most of the time, I think, 
I think most of most of most of us, if we were reading Isaiah, if we were reading Jeremiah, okay, let's say we're doing a Bible study in Jeremiah, uh, and we read this part where God was warning the people of Babylon about something, and uh, He warned them, and then He said, "If you don't do this, these horrible things are going to happen to them." And then, and then we read that that these destructions happened. We wouldn't go, "Oh man, I, I let's check the need. Let me turn on CNN and see if Babylon's in trouble. Like if any of these prophecies here in Isaiah are going to happen to Babylon tomorrow." No, because we understand that that was a long time ago, and those that, that, that nation doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would read it and go, oh, yeah, so God's, you know, the, the prophet's using this very flowerly apocalyptic language. He's overstating the magnitude of this destruction. But we would get it. You know, we would kind of go, oh, yeah, okay, this is how it was fulfilled back then. But the problem is, see, with the New Testament, if we don't, number one, if we don't recognize Jesus is using the exact same language, he's talking about the exact same thing they were. He's warning people in Jerusalem that this kind of destruction is going to come upon you. It's not the end of the world, but it will be the end of their world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the world as they know it will cease to be. But the, the thing that I think that makes it additionally challenging for us when we read the New Testament prophecies like that, like the Olivet Discourse, is that we do not have within the New Testament, you know, we can't turn the page or turn to another book in the New Testament and read, and this is how... You know, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Mm-hmm. And step by step, here's exactly what happened throughout that process. And then we could then we could connect the dots and go, oh, wow, look at that. Look what happened here and when, when Jerusalem was destroyed. <gasps> that reminds me of what Jesus said was going to happen over here in Matthew 24. And so actually, that's one thing I do in the book. I, I go through the um, Josephus was mm-hmm. a historian who lived during the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's a Jewish historian, not a Christian, not not probably not even aware of anything Jesus prophesied in the Olivet Discourse. He's just reporting the way the destruction of Jerusalem happened. And there are parallels. There are some pretty amazing, pretty astounding things yeah. that he mentions in that in that destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. But again, because it's not in my Bible, uh, it sort of leaves that story hanging. It leaves it open to us to say, well, the stars haven't fallen from the sky yet. You know, the the, the, the heavens have not been rolled back like a scroll yet. Um, you know, I guess, you know, the moon hasn't turned to blood and the sun hasn't stopped giving its light and all these, these sound like world ending things. Well, these haven't happened yet. So I guess all that stuff Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, I guess it hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. And then, so again, that sort of leaves us vulnerable to someone like Darby or anybody else, really, uh, any other sort of Bible prophecy teacher who wants to say, well, this is, this is perfectly what's happening right now. And, you know, in Jerusalem, because we, we don't know that it's already been fulfilled. Give me a minute. We'll be right back. Yeah, this is a question I had after reading your book, and I don't remember if you addressed it specifically, and I'm going to take it a little bit, I'm going to stretch it further away from Jesus probably than Uh, I mean, the book is titled Jesus Unexpected. But (laughs) so when I read the way that I've begun and I've spent probably six months or so, Keith, like apocalyptic literature, not the not the word, obviously, is something I've been working through for the bulk of this year. I I tend to to grab onto a topic and then I really wrestle with it and I wrestle with nothing else until I feel like I'm in a better spot. The way I'm beginning to read the Old Testament prophets are they're writing to a Babylon or a Egypt or a military superpower that is hoarding wealth and abusing people. And 
being prophesized against of this is what happens when you do this and the end of your age is coming. And so is it too much of a stretch to say, and and I don't want to make this political, but I honestly feel like this book and your first book really go hand in hand because often people use their end times theology to donate money to a church to then use that influence and power to influence politics and policies that the country happens to use, but especially in the world that we live in right now. But the way I read it is when you act like Babylon, your end of the age comes. Like this is what happens prophetically to people that do this to other people as a nation. Yes. Is that the wrong way to read the end times in the view of the way that you've lensed it in your book here? No, I don't. I think that's actually one of the probably more helpful and healthy ways of looking at apocalyptic literature. So not looking at it specifically, like this particular detail, like, oh, there you go. Like, you know, these armored uh, centaurs with the heads of women and tails of scorpions, those are Black Hawk helicopters. Like, no, (laughs) stop. Don't do that. Don't do that. But now, like what you're saying, I think is, I think that actually is a healthier way to look at it. I think that if, if there's any benefit for us today... Uh, because again, it, it, these prophetic scriptures, these apocalyptic scriptures that we have in, in the old and even in the new with Revelation and, and the Old Discourse, um, they're about destructions and the ends of empires that have already happened. Mm-hmm. And so, yet we are living in probably the largest empire military might that's ever existed in the history of the planet. And so, yes, we can definitely look at those scriptures and say, look at them in sort of in a general sense and say, Empires that ignore the poor, empires that uh, build a mass wealth for themselves, empires that are uh, that lust after war and conflict, empires that get rich, um, you know, uh, plundering other nations and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Again, in general, those are the kinds of sins of uh, of these nations, right? That we see that that it end up these destructions come upon them, that they end up these empires end up crumbling and falling. And it is, it is usually seen as sort of God's triumph over those, these man-made empires. In other words, uh, the leaders of these empires think of themselves as gods. They have all this power. Who can stand against me and et cetera? And yet they fall and crumble, and that's what they do over and over and over again. And so that's why in Revelation, you know, we have this tr- very triumphant um, statement that as the empire, as the Babylon, as the you know, a Roman Empire, whoever it happens to be, as it as it falls, there's this declaration that the, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God. And so every kingdom, every empire will fall, must fall, has to fall, so that Christ's kingdom is the only one left standing. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I think if you do in general, just say, hey, as a rule of thumb, it's not good to be an empire who behaves this way, mm-hmm. and maybe we should just be aware that every empire will fall. And uh, yeah. these are, again, but, but not, not looking for some sort of specific thing on the calendar or like, oh, this event yeah. is going to happen. Yeah, your example for Black Hawk helicopters. I can't tell you how many times in my youth, the not Blackhawks, but you know, specific things were used as specific examples in that way. And I would always yeah. in the back go, I guess, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I okay i guess like but sure. i don't i didn't know enough to say absolutely not i just okay i guess i don't what yeah. am i supposed to do with that but yeah. but um the uh so the antichrist and you talk a lot about this on the internet uh you've blogged about this you've written about it here when most people say antichrist they mean a thing like a person a being a 
world emperor, a whatever adjective you want to apply there. What are you getting at when you use the word antichrist? Well, I'm getting at what I think the Bible says about it. So it's really <laughs> simple. You could just go and look up the term antichrist in, you know, search it in a concordance or go online to Bible Gateway and look up the word and you'll find it appears like twice in First John. Mm. Um, not in Revelation. Wow, what a, what a, what a shock, right? Um, <laughs> not in this end times apocalyptic sort of language. So yeah, it has been something that's, it's a term that really sort of Darby and end times futurists have sort of taken that title, that, that terminology and applied it to a specific person and said, we are looking for an antichrist. It's going to be this in times, you know, sort of tyrant figure. Um, but that's not the way it's used. I mean, Antichrist, I mean, John says that actually many Antichrists have come in are already here, and he said that 2,000 years ago. So um, it just simply means, the way he defines it, is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, anyone that says Jesus is not the Messiah. And if you want to get really kind of technical, um, if you like, if we could interview John, and say, John, mm. who do you have in mind any certain specific types of people when you talk about who are the kinds of people in your day and age who are persecuting Christians but but deny that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, it would either be the Jewish people that rejected Jesus as the Messiah and didn't believe uh, that he was the Messiah, or and or uh, the Romans, mm. right? So, I mean, he had a specific, he probably had a very specific group of people in mind when he used that phrase, but he certainly didn't have any in mind any sort of, you know, future figure who was going to show up and have some sort of power and authority to, mm -hmm. you know, deceive the nations or something like that. And I haven't been to a lot of funerals, and I, I also recently lost my father. And at his funeral, I listened to uh, family members, extended, not extended, ensure uh, with the funeral home. And, and this is probably far off topic, but I feel like it's related to the, the view on the rapture. Um, that dad had to be facing a specific way. And are you certain that we delivered the coffin in a specific way? His head has to face this way. He has to be, his feet needs to be facing this way so that when the sun rises and Christ comes back with the morning and he's, you know, he'll, he'll be face to face. Like that way they'll see each other face to face. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? You didn't talk about that in your in your book, but and I've only thought about it since the funeral because I'd only yeah. been to a handful of funerals and I'd never been close enough to the actual ongoings to even hear people having that conversation. Is yeah? Have you ever heard that at all before? Is that a thing where it's like, yeah, this no, has to I have not. That is actually probably one of the more extreme things I've heard. Um, and again, it's but it's it's the it's built on the assumption. Mm -hmm that there's going to be this rapture yeah. and we're all going to pop out of our graves and meet Jesus in the sky kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I get it. If you believe that, then certainly you know, you're yeah. going to do what you can. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> it's in some ways it just seems like, let's say you were facing the other way. I mean, so for <laughs> a second, you'd have to turn your head. I think yeah. it's okay. You, you still, you're not gonna be left behind because you had to, Oh, I had to turn around, and by the yeah. time I did, I missed it. Like, oh, darn. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what I realized is that I really didn't answer your question. You had asked me sort of about this in the beginning there about the rapture, and I mentioned that it came from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, mm. and I put a pin in it, but I never came back to it. So mm -hmm. let me let me just address this, because, again, there is a scripture that really does, because we've been told to read it this way, you know, tells us, like 1 Thessalonians 4, 
uh, starting in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so, I mean, when you just take that out of context and read that just the way I did, it seems like, there you go, man. I mean, it's plain as day. He just tells you right there what's going to happen. The problem is, uh, again, we've been sort of conditioned to read it that way. And for, again, for most of church history, Christians did not read it in that way. So here's something I point, I point out in the book. Um, so I, met, I spent some time explaining the Olivet Discourse mm-hmm. and how the Olivet Discourse that Jesus speaks is specifically about the destruction of that temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. So um, what I do in the book is I put side by side the parallels of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and Matthew 24. And when you do, here's what you notice. Um, These are phrases and terminology used both by Jesus in Matthew 24, when he's only talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and the same exact terminology used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And here's what you notice. Both of them talk about Christ's return, from heaven with the angels, the sound of a trumpet, believers gathered together in the clouds, the timing unknown, coming like a thief, people unaware. It's compared to the birth pangs. Believers are urged to be sober and there's warning against drunkenness. So when you put those side by side, it seems like they're both about the same exact event. Paul is not talking here about some other thing than Jesus is talking about. They're both talking about the same kind of thing. The, The challenges for us is that Paul is using a little bit more descriptive language, and he's using a slightly different metaphor to the, to talk about the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of Christ in that in that figurative way. And in this sense, N.T. Wright was very helpful to me because N.T. Wright had a wonderful little commentary on this, where he talks about that, you know, Paul's description in First Thessalonians four is this, you know, he uses this kind of language, but he's not at all intending to paint a left behind sort of rapture picture for us. Um, what he's really doing is describing what people in that day would have understood was something very common that when the when a king went away, either into battle or he visited you know another nation for some reason, that when he came back to his kingdom, the watchman on the wall would see him coming from a distance, tell everybody that, hey, here he comes, maybe blow a trumpet and say, hey, here he comes, and open the gate, and all the people would rush out to meet him along the road and cheer and, you know, yay, he's back. Mm-hmm. And then it welcome him in. And then they all follow him back into the city and close the door. That's the picture Paul is using when he describes this sort of coming of Jesus. Jesus is talking about the same thing. Paul's talking about the same thing. Paul uses this other sort of metaphor to explain it. And because of that, we get confused. We, oh, we're going to be caught up with him. We're going to meet him in the air. That's not like literal picture. It's not a literal idea. So what are we to do with the resurrection then? Because that is a tentpole for that is. Western evangelicalism. Yeah, and that was probably, I'll be honest, probably the most difficult thing when writing this book to work out. Because I do feel like the resurrection, um, I mean, I, I probably should just go in and let people know. I mean, this is sort of the big surprise in the book. Because I feel, what I feel like in my studies is that when the scriptures talk about the the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, um, that it's not describing a physical thing. It's not describing Jesus as a physical body coming and showing up again in the sky. Um, That when when we get those kind of descriptions, what it's actually talking about is, in in other words, that Christ is coming in us. Uh, In other words, I I say that there's more of Christ in the world today than there was 2,000 years ago. This explains what Jesus means in John 14, when he tells the disciples, it's better for you if I go away. 
And see, now we've been through this Darbyization of thinking about things. And so we don't believe that. We think, oh no, Jesus, you're wrong. It's going to be so much better when you get back. Hmm. But no, Jesus says, no, no, no. It's going to be so much better when I go away. Because if I go away, right, then the, the Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit comes. Now the Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh. Now Christ abides and lives within every one of us. This is the promise of the new covenant fulfilled. That you know, I will be your God and you will be my people. And every one of you will know me. Everyone can hear my voice. Everyone has a direct connection now with God through Christ. You know, Jesus says, and again, in the same passage in John, he says, if I go away, I'll prepare a place so that where I am, you can be also. So where is Christ right now? Well, he's not up there. He's here, right? We say that Christ is in us. We, he, he abides in us. We abide in him. Jesus says the Father and the Son will come and make their home in you. And so it's in this sense. In fact, this whole idea of the coming of Christ, the phrase used in the New Testament is parousia, which means the presence. It's the presence of Christ. And so that's one of the major things I'm, I'm arguing for in the book. And I, I understand it's a stretch for many people. Mm -hmm. I call it the slow motion second coming of Christ, that one at a time, as each person uh, has Christ come alive in them and they abide in Christ, there is more and more and more of Christ in the world. And in this way, we are his hands, we are his feet, we are the body of Christ in the world today. And so that's the plan. And it's in this way that Christ comes and continues to come and keeps coming like that little pinch of yeast and that, that fills the whole lump of dough, like that little tiny seed that first has to go and die into the ground and die so that now it can bear much fruit and then becomes like the mustard seed that covers, you know, the earth. This is the picture we have. This is the plan that we have. So if that's the understanding, if that is right, then again, the question is, well, what about this resurrection that we're supposed to experience? So I point out in the book and I go through, I think pretty systematically, mm -hmm. the different times that Paul speaks of this idea of the resurrection and, and also John in Revelation, when he speaks of the, the resurrection and point out that this resurrection is something that Paul says, we have already been raised with Christ. So we have already experienced what, what they call the first resurrection because we were dead in our sins. When Christ died, all of us died. And when he was raised, all of us were raised. And so, you know, it says, he says in Ephesians, we have all been raised with Christ and we are sitting with him in heavenly places. This is the first resurrection. So in, in that sense, everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is abiding in Christ and Christ abides in you, you are right now you have experienced the first resurrection. The second resurrection is the one that we will all experience when we physically die. And then when you will open your eyes and you will then be face to face with Jesus in a newness of life. You know, Jesus has overcome the grave and death has lost its sting mm -hmm. because now when we die, we are transported into his presence and we live with him for eternity. And that would be the second resurrection. And so that's my understanding of the term resurrection. That's what I think is actually being told to us in the New Testament. Side question that I thought of a moment ago, and, and I want to go back to Darby and Schofield. So there have been measurable people that benefit from when we, you know, we put the word uh, homosexuality in the Bible and other translations of the Bible or influences or versions. There are people that benefit from those. What does Schofield stand to benefit or what what's the reasoning there? Like there has to be a reason that Schofield would attach a name like Darby to a Bible, like what is the interplay there? Like who, who gains in this? Right. Well, I think early on what happened was, and um, I don't know who Bill Witherington is, but he does a wonderful job, mm -hmm. I think, of explaining that. Oh, he's, he's great. He's a, he's a Bible scholar. There's a video on U YouTube I watched of him explaining this. So here's the thing about 
this whole dispensational movement. If we go back to 1830, when Darby first came up with it, right? He did not sell well, not go over well immediately in England, which is where he was from. Mm -hmm. He came to America and he began preaching this to American audiences and they ate it up with a spoon. They loved it. It was a very popular movement among just the people, you know, on the pews. Uh, they loved the story. It just got them excited. They couldn't, they wanted to hear more about it. They got, they got excited about it. This is when, you know, it's sort of like, well, hey, the, there was this, this sells. <laughs> let's put it in a book. Let's put mm -hmm. it in, a, let's drop it. Let's make a version of the Bible with Darby's notes in it. And then we'll sell a lot of Bibles. And now here's the other kind of way that it was a, it was sort of a backwards movement, the way it would form. So then it gained so much popularity among the, the average person, the, the people in the pews, that all of a sudden they said, and this, this is exactly what Ben uh, Witherington points out. He says that literally what happened was it was so popular that people began to say, wouldn't it be great if we had some sort of scholarship, you know, to mm. kind of back this up? Like, what if there was like a Bible college or I don't know, maybe a seminary that would kind of legitimize this where we could like pump out some ordained pastors who who had been trained and uh, and they would preach this stuff because because right now the only people preaching it is this guy Darby and some other people that think it's kind of fun. So that's kind of exactly what happened. This is where we get Dallas Bible Theological Seminary and DL Moody uh, Moody Institute and things like this. It's like let's do that. Let's create an organization that will create pastors that are ordained and licensed that will now go in, and preach in churches, and now have sort of credentials behind them. So, uh, so when you say like, what does someone have to gain? I mean, to this day, uh, this kind of end times prophecy stuff is a huge moneymaker. Hagee sold millions of copies of his Blood Moons book. Hal Lindsey sold millions of copies of Late Great Planet Earth. Mm -hmm. Left Behind series, the reason why they kept making them is because they People made lots and yeah. lots of money. I, I got to tell you this. This is the first time I experienced the hype around this topic. I don't normally talk about these kind of things, right? So about, I guess it's like six or seven years ago, whenever it was that John Hagee had his Blood Moons prophecy book, right? So I looked into it a little bit and I just thought, this is nonsense. And I wrote a blog post where I debunked the whole thing. And the first time I'd ever really done anything on that topic. And at the time, I probably would get on a good blog post, like every week, I might might get six or 700 hits uh, on, on a post if it was like really good. Maybe a thousand if it was like super good. I published that re refutation of John Hagee's blood moon thing. And I got like 30,000 hits mm. and it blew my mind. I went to go check and it was just like this spike and I'm, I've got the bar graph and it's like, woohoo, like, oh my gosh, mm. what? You know, and it's only because people are Googling blood moon prophecy and my thing pops up and ba boom, I got these hits and you, I mean, I'll be honest, I got a rush. I was like, man. Maybe I should write another one. It sells. <laughs> people love this stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't making any money, but it was like, you just couldn't believe mm. the appetite for this thing. And this is the thing that drives me crazy, Seth. What all of these guys have in common, what all of these end times Bible prophecy guys have in common is this. They're wrong. A hundred percent of the time, everything they pr predicted and prophesied, they've been wrong, right? How Lindsay was wrong. The eighties were not the last decade of mankind on earth, which is what he said. You know, Gorbachev was not the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I've seen these books like over and over and over again, all these things they prophesied. Nope, they've been wrong. Uh, and and here's a crazy thing. In, in spite of the fact they've all been wrong, any one of those guys could publish a book tomorrow mm -hmm. about the end times and sell a million yeah. copies. Yeah, bestseller. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't hurt their popularity at all.
Yeah. So we just have this incredible appetite for this thing. Hearing you describe the foundation of seminaries and training up pastors to basically preach this based upon eisegesis is what it sounds like. Like, this is the way we read scripture. We need you to train people to read it this way. But then I so often get told that that's what I'm doing when I try to go back to the earlier church fathers. Like, no, this is the way it's, this is kind of the context that it was written to. And these are the people that it was written to. And here's what was happening in the year 100, you know, yeah. and they're like, no, that's, I, you're, you're making it say what you wanted to say. I'm like, am I though? And I hadn't never really thought about the end times that way, but to hear you describe it that way, that's what it feels like, like systematic eisegesis 200 yeah. years removed that's now become gospel, for lack of a better word, to a, yeah, to a you know, sex. Uh, someone called me this, the, I mean, in, in a good way. I, I did a debate a while back and the guy in the debate kept calling me a progressive. Mm-hmm. I'm a progressive Christian. And I'm like, I don't consider myself a progressive. Jesus and the guy, one of the guys in the one of the guys in the comments said, "Keith, I think you're actually a regressive Christian because what you're wanting to do is to take us back to the early Christians, mm-hmm. the early church." And I'm like, "That's it. I'm going to I need I need to to trademark that. I am a regressive Christian. I want to take the church. That's really honestly a lot of what I've been doing. You know, so much of what I feel like we've gotten the church has gotten off track, and I can pretty much put my finger on it was right around the time of Constantine. And that was pretty much when we started getting off this, mm-hmm. the track of Jesus. And so, yeah, a whole, I mean, almost all of my books, you know, I'm quoting Irenaeus and Tertullian mm-hmm. and Origen, and like, because I feel like these guys had an unfiltered view of Jesus and the gospel. And many of them were, you know, either trained by one of the apostles or trained by someone who was trained by one of the apostles. Um, and so, yeah, I just, uh, I feel like we, We've gotten way, way off track yeah. uh, with a lot of our theology. And um, so, yeah, I think you're kind of like me, I guess. You're a regressive Christian. Uh, depending on the topic, again, because I only yeah, know I what I'm studying at the time. <laughs> Although I've become, I guess, wise enough to, when people ask me a question, I'm like, I don't know. I haven't studied that. I really don't know. You should look oh, at yeah. this, 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 and this, because I just don't know. I know how much I thought I knew about the topics that I've ripped apart. And I mean, I'm not going to say I know anymore unless I really feel like I, I can adequately say what, anyway, you know what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying it well, but, but, no, no, but you're um, right. I think that's a good, uh, that's a good discipline we all should have. Even when we've studied and even, even, you know, you should have the, you should say, I think, <laughs> I yeah. think I know. Yeah. Dunning-Kruger you know I mean? is my middle name. Trust yeah, I've me. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Probably, probably twice today. So you referenced earlier that you're giving away something into the book, but I want to, I want to say this for people that haven't read the book. So we didn't talk about Daniel 7 hardly at all. Uh, Josephus, you've got words like Flavius and a bunch of other stuff in, in this book that we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about the temple and how you and I are that. Like there's so many other things yeah. that we don't have time to talk about. So don't hear Keith say that and then think that you get off the hook with not, because you, you should get the book and there is much more that we did we have not and we won't be able to be talking about. Um, I want to ask you the same question I've asked everyone this year, Keith. So when you say this is what God is, like you're trying to wrap words around the concept of God, how do you, like, what do you say to that? When someone's like, Keith, what, what like for real, what is, when you say God, what do you mean? Mm, that is wonderful. Great question. I, well, I'll just say the definition keeps expanding, you know? I mean, in general, I think when I think of God, initially, I think of God as sort of an Abba. I feel like, you know, Jesus gave us this beautiful picture of God as a, as a loving father. So definitely that's how I see God. But 
in my studies, not this book so much as much as the book I'm just finished writing, I've started to, and then I'm just going to call him out. Baxter Kruger blew my mind. He just put out this little PDF called The Mediation of Christ, which is phenomenal. It's free. You can download it. You Google it and download it. It's, it's just amazing. It's about, I don't know, it's long. It's not, it's not, it's not an easy read, but it's worth reading. And I think what he points out, it's like, I don't know. I just feel like more and more I've, God is better than I think he is. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I keep, I keep discovering more things about God and I have to stop and say, wow, God, you're better than I thought you were. Like that happened to me when I read Brad Jerzak's book, Her Gates Will Not Be Shut. Second person today that has used that book in a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. I was, I read, I was reading that book, riding the train uh, to work and I was crying, sitting on the train, weeping and just like, Oh God, you're better than I thought you were. And, um, and I feel like it's happened again, like reading Baxter Kruger's thing. It's like, I'm, I'm just kind of imagining and, and trying to wrap my brain around the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. It's always, it's bigger and more amazing than I thought it was. And the more I know God, the, the, the more I draw near to him and uh, experience him, uh, I'm just constantly being amazed that he's better than I thought he was. Where do people go, Keith? You got 97 podcasts, 8,000 books. Like, where do you want people to go to, to to dig into your things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't have that many, but I, I have a Heretic Happy Hour podcast. <laughs> I was using uh, apocalyptic hyperbole. Oh, there you go. I, <laughs> and I'll, but I'll say the, the, the podcast is not for everybody. I mean, a lot of people are offended. Some of the, there's some language there and, and we get into some weird topics. It says explicit um, in iTunes. Does, though, so I feel does. like that's on you if you didn't, if you didn't if see you that. Yeah. But um, I mean, uh, if you want to connect with me, like, you know, I, I blog at Pathios that you can just follow, find that at KeithGiles.com. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. I'm pretty pretty responsive there. My books are on Amazon. The whole Jesus Un series is on Amazon in print and audio and Kindle. So yeah, those are probably the main places you can connect with me. Good, good. Thank you again for your time tonight, Keith. Always a pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Seth. It's been fun. So when I think back over the past almost 10 years, I think I've intentionally avoided talking about eschatology and end times because I got a lot of baggage there and I still do. And and Keith's book was pretty helpful with that. It opened up some new things for me and I've begun still reading more. I have a whole lot more to learn. Um, I spent a lot of time personally digging into hell, but not a lot of times digging into the REM song of it's the end of the world as we know it. Though I do want to be clear, I feel fine. I feel totally secure in what I currently hold as true. If you're able, you should join over at Patreon. I promise you, you will not regret it. And the level is not what is important. Just jump in there, hit the button, click the button, do whatever you need to do with the thing. I would like to thank both Carol Davies and Robert Smith for joining in there. It is human beings like you two that continue to make this show be a thing. And I could not do this without you and people like you. So this month is going to be good. February is going to be good. I have already recorded episodes almost up until March. I'm just in the middle of trying to mix all those and I am excited. So one final request. If there's somebody that you're like, you know what, could you please try to talk to this person about this, shoot me an email and let me know. And I will do my best to make that happen. But those are some of the most fun conversations, people that are outside of my 
peripheral view. I hope that you ended the year well and that this one is beginning even better. Be blessed.